Again, we'll read the first nine verses, Psalm 107, beginning the reading in verse 1. Let's hear God's Word. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered them out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city of habitation. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. God bless the reading of his precious word. Bow with me for a moment, please, in prayer, and let's seek the Lord together. Father, Thou art the one that hast throughout Thy Word taught us to call upon Thy name. And so we do that now as we begin to look into this book. We need help to understand. This is not something we freely acknowledge that is grasped by mere human intellect. Thy Holy Spirit must give understanding. For indeed, these are spiritual truths. We thank Thee for the promise that Thou wilt give the very thing that we need. We don't need to wonder whether or not Thou wilt come and speak to us. For Thou hast promised to feed the sheep. Thou hast promised to declare Thy truth very plainly to Thy people. And we pray tonight that there will be help given to the preacher to make much of Christ, to bring the truth in a way that is clear and simple, that there be nothing confusing about what is said. But when thy people leave the house of God tonight, they will know exactly what the preacher said, understand it, and more importantly, understand what the Lord has said. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the undeniable results of receiving this free salvation is that those who receive it, though made free, are debtors. Debtors to God. Debtors not for the years of time alone, but debtors for eternity. By describing those whom the Lord saves as debtors, I am not suggesting for one solitary moment that they have a debt to God that has to be paid off in order for them to be able to enter heaven when they die. I do admit there are many who think that way. They think that, well, if I try to do the best that I can and try to be the best that I can, to live up to what they think will please God and will enable them to escape hell, uh, 
and enjoy heaven. Those who approach salvation that way are indeed debtors, but not to God. Paul states in Galatians 5.3 that anyone who pins his hopes of obtaining God's salvation by obeying his law, by being good and doing good in essence, is a debtor, he says, to do the whole law. If you're going to use human efforts to keep God's law as the basis of your salvation, then you're going to have to keep all of God's law. Every one of the commandments. Because the scripture says in Galatians 3.10, cursed. That's a serious word. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Note that. All things. Who continueth not in all things. That means perfect obedience always to every commandment in the book of the law of God. That means it's absolutely impossible for a man to be saved by trying to obey God's law by doing good. And so Paul says, no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. At the end of the day, that's all that really matters, whether or not you are righteous in the sight of God. It doesn't matter what some human thinks of you. It doesn't matter their opinion of your Christian testimony. What must happen when you die is that you are accepted in the sight of God as righteous, perfect. Without that, you're a debtor to the law, obligated to obey every command, and it is a debt that you simply have no ability to pay. Primarily, Because you start out, start out as a sinner, already breaking the law of God. So if that's the case, you will go to your grave as a lost sinner, unsaved, unrighteous, cursed. And will wake up in God's hell, forever lost. It's that word ever, the old Puritan said, that breaks the heart. Forever and ever lost. Now, those whom God saves are debtors, not to the law, but to God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 12. You'll find Paul saying, brethren, we are debtors. He's writing to Christians. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. And he goes on in that chapter to talk about this kind of debt that we owe God. The kind of life that we owe God to live. But the fact that Christ has saved us out of this the slave house of sin, this bondage to sin that was going to drag us into hell, we owe him. 
We owe him. We're indebted to him. We are obligated to a life of obedience and gratitude, thanksgiving, praise. John Gill, in commenting on that text in Romans 8.12, said, The more and greater the favors which the redeemed enjoy, the more obligated they are to be grateful and obey. And that only makes sense. Only makes sense. He's done this for us. Lord, what can I do for you? He's done all this for us. Why would I not be full of thanks? Why would I not praise him for what he's done for someone who only deserved to be cursed in the lake of fire? It is this debt to God and his grace that the psalmist has in mind when he cries, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. That word translated goodness occurs very often throughout the Old Testament. I know you don't care about Hebrew, but you might hear this word now and then. The word kesed. It's a very precious word. Sometimes it's translated loving kindnesses. So often it's the word mercy. Mercy. Mercy is God's love for the misery that sin brings into our life. Mercy. It's the loving kindness of God where he will do whatever it takes. And I mean that. He will do whatever it takes to bring us to glory. Whatever. It is his mercy that will endure forever. It is his mercy that will outlast all of your sin and your failures and your backslidings and your unbelief. It's going to outlast them all. Thanks be to his name. Bless the Lord that it doesn't run out. Bless the Lord he doesn't give up. When we make the same foolish mistakes over and over and over again. And we fall prey to the same temptations over and over again. Kesed is God saying, I will do whatever it takes to bring you to glory. And because of that, because of that goodness, he will make us overcomers. And they overcame him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. In fact, more than overcomers. So why don't we live like that? Why is it too often, if I can just get through the day, without really blowing it? 
Why is it strange often for the Lord's child to so seldom sing a song? The psalmist summarizes all that he said about this goodness, this mercy of God in the first eight verses by declaring that God, in verse 9, that's our text, satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. That is the text, as you know, if you were here this morning, we're considering the subject of hunger for God. The longing and the hunger it refers to, as we saw earlier, is spiritual in nature. And the more you and I live in the reality of God's goodness, the more you and I live in the reality of God's mercy in our lives, the more we grasp how much we owe Him, how great a debtor we are to the Lord, a debtor we are to obey Him and to thank Him, the more we will desire him, the more hungry we become for the Lord, the more we want him in our lives, the more we want to enjoy his presence. You recall that we were examining the subject of hunger for God under four questions. Number one, what is it? And you might think I'm done there, but I'm not. I've got to finish answering that question. What is it? Two, why should we want it? Why should we want hunger for God? Number three, how does it come? And number four, how is that hunger satisfied? So we began to take up that first question to see just what desire or hunger for God looks like in real time. Day to day. I pointed out that fundamentally it's a longing for the felt presence of God, an experience. It's not simply believing that God is omnipresent and believing that the Spirit of God lives within His people. It's wanting to experience, that's why I say the felt presence of the Lord. It's a hunger for God that won't be satisfied with the intellectual concept that God is with me and will never leave me. Certainly that's a resting place for the Christian's faith when the devil tempts the child of God to think otherwise. When you can't feel anything, and when there is no hunger for God, it's right then and there that Satan will come along and say, he has forsaken you. Look. You have no hunger for him. You don't feel anything. Your heart is cold and dead. And right there, I've got to come back to fundamental truths. God said he would never leave me nor forsake me. Whether or not I feel him, I'm still his and he's still mine and I'm still his. He's still my God and I'm still his child. Feeling or no. Then we considered that hunger for God is a longing and desire for Communion with God. Do you remember what it was like? Some of the older folks probably still do. When you fell in love with that 
spouse sitting now beside you? Do you remember what that was like? Didn't you just want to be with him? Sure you did. Just long to be in their presence. Used to early days, courting days. My wife lived two hours away up in Jersey. I was in Maryland and I had to drive up to see her on the weekends when I could see her. But it was just like a five-minute ride just to be in her presence. Why? There's a longing to commune, to talk. For me to talk to her and to hear her talk to me. That's on a very low plane, but you lift it up to the spiritual plane and that's what it is when you long for the Lord. You want to talk to him and you want him to talk to you. You want to come to church and hear the Lord, not audibly, but from the preached word because that's how God works. Through the preached word, he speaks to his people. Personally, he communicates Here's the truth, he says, I want to press home to your heart. And isn't it wonderful how you sense the Lord is speaking to you? You say, that was a word for me. That's what I needed to hear. No one else knew it. The preacher didn't know it. It's as if he was sitting in my living room, or better, sitting on my shoulder, and could read my thoughts. And the fact is, there was someone who could read your thoughts and knew what you were thinking, and knew what you needed, and that was God, the present God. And so you heard a word in season. And you know, when you hear the Lord speak, you want to hear him speak more to you. There's something about that that causes the heart to, Lord, I want to commune more with you. I don't want to be satisfied. You see, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. Whenever, whenever true revival has been sent from heaven, and it, let me say it's rare. Revival is not commonplace. And you don't want to find yourself always consumed with revival and forget about the common operation of the Spirit of God in the life of the church. That's a bad mistake to make because everything else then is inconsequential. But when the... When the Holy Ghost has been poured out upon a community or a nation, what is it? It is the Lord revealing His presence to His people, and it is felt at a level they never had before. There was a 12-year-old one time in the 1859 revival in Northern Ireland. Twelve-year-old stood up in the meeting on the pew. And prayed. It was a prayer time. Twelve-year-old. Oh, Lord, come to me. Oh, Lord, come to me. And when you do come to me, don't leave me. There was an awareness of God's presence. A felt need to hold fellowship with the God of heaven. To desire to talk with him. A desire for him to speak to us. That desire 
ebbs and flows. Sometimes it's stronger than others. Sometimes you just can't wait to get to the word and get to the throne of grace and pour out your heart. Sometimes it's just something you know you need to do. I've got to seek the Lord. Because you know going down the path of neglecting the Lord's communion and fellowship it will result in that hunger for God lessening more and more. Because you know what the psalmist said elsewhere, at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures in God's presence. A further answer to that first question is a longing to experience the power, the working of God's love and grace. The idea of the power of it is vital. The working of it is vital. Certainly the psalmist is describing that very thing in these four pictures of the redeemed who are in deep trouble, longing for God to come in and exercise his power, exercise his mercy, exercise his love. They're in desperate straits in each one of these situations. And they need the Lord to intervene. They, they, they want to see his, his arm made bare. And the Lord comes and he exercises his power to deliver them. They were longing to see his power deliver their lives. And so to hunger for God, to desire to long for Him, is to long for a manifestation, key word is manifestation, of His grace and His love in you, to you, and through you. In you, to you, and through you. Nothing, nothing will empower and so energize the child of God to be and to do whatever the Lord wants them to be and to do as this. The manifestation, the exercise of God's grace in us, His love to us, and all working that through us. You want power to pray, then what do you need? You need power. You need divine enablement. You need someone to come and stir your heart up to seek the Lord, to deal with all the baggage and all the bondage and all the burdens that are keeping you from the throne of grace. You need the Lord to deliver you if your life is prayerless. I can tell you that and no one else can do it. You cannot deliver yourself. It's not going to happen. Your want to, your wish to, everything else, it is not going to happen. It is God alone who can actually come and do the kind of work that's necessary for your prayer life.
You don't have a hunger for the Word of God? Oh, you may have a hunger for Facebook or whatever they're called, Instagram, Twitter. You have no problem spending a lot of time there. But the same desire, you'd have to be honest, is not for the Word of God. You can't fix that. But there's one who can, and he does it. He does it by exercising his love and his grace in your soul. You need faith to trust God in the wilderness where there's no water. You're spiritually barren and dry. And maybe it's been going on for a long, long time. You really can't remember the last time you just wept before God at the throne of grace and poured out your heart and just had to stay there and stay there till the light shone through. You can't remember that time. It's been that long. You feel that all is lost. That you can never recover. What's needed is the experience of the power. It sanctifies us. We're sanctified by His grace. His grace is His working in us continually. To be able to rejoice in the midst of waves of sorrow that life's experiences brings into your life, that can only be done by the exercise of God's love and grace. I will testify to that. That's the only way it comes. But to bring you to the heart of the matter, let me remind you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because we're talking about the power of God. Some nebulous term, but how God actually exercises himself in the lives, the hearts of his people. He says in 1 Corinthians 1 that Christ is the power of God. Christ is the power of God. And in the context, it is a specific reference to the cross of Jesus Christ. The preaching of the cross, verse 18, unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The preaching of the cross. That church had a whole lot of problems. If you know anything about the church at Corinth, it was riddled with problems. I mean, it, it was rife with pride. They were bragging about the gifts that they had, coveting to be seen of men. Fornication was people who wanted Paul to change his message to appeal more to the, you know, the erudite in Corinth. That was a city for a lot of knowledge and wisdom. 
They love the philosophers. They wanted Paul to, uh, to adjust his, his sermon, this, this gospel that was about blood and sacrifice and the cross. You know, that's just still too strong for our, the stomachs of these people. Paul, just adjust your message and you'll be m- much more acceptable to these people. And what does Paul do from chapter 1? He starts right off. The cross of Christ is the power of God. That was the answer. Hanging on that Roman cross was Jesus Christ at his weakest. But hanging on the cross was Jesus Christ, the power of God. When, when I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. That is power. Power to subdue pride and self-centeredness. Power to deal with the prayerlessness and the lack of hunger for the Word of God. Because what you see displayed at Calvary above anything else is God's love and God's justice meeting. What do you do, child of God, what do you do when you feel the guilt of your sin? What do you do when the devil says there's no point in really reading your Bible because you've fallen so much the Lord's not going to talk to you. There's no point in praying at all. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You're filthy and you're defiled. I'll tell you one thing, there is only one answer. What though the restless foe accuses, recounting sins that I have done, every charge my God refuses, Christ has answered with his blood. What else can we do but say, Lord, have mercy? Have mercy on me. And the Lord comes and says, I delight to show mercy to sinners. And he smothers us. He smothers us in his love. Ah, that is the experience of the love and grace of God in the life. And it works. I think that never is the child of God, in this world at least, so near heaven as when he has experienced the grace and the love of God in the face, in the very face of his sin and his failure. 
It's like heaven on earth. I wonder, you know, what it was like for that woman taken in adultery by the Pharisees, how embarrassed she must have felt. Caught in the very act, they said. Come on, you harlot. They throw her down at his feet. She was guilty and she knew it. The law of Moses required her to be stoned. Christ stoops down, writes in the sand. We'll find out one day, but that's not what's important. One by one, starting with the oldest Pharisee, they leave her. It's just her and Christ standing alone. Where are thine accusers? They're not here. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I would say she tasted a bit of heaven that day. How often has the Lord done that with you? Can you count the times when you felt condemned? And the Lord in mercy says, I don't condemn you either. I've already condemned that sin in my son. It's been dealt with. It's over. It's covered. You're forgiven. Those are happy times, I tell you. That's a bit of heaven on earth. That's part and parcel what it is to long for, to hunger for God. Hungering for his grace and his love exercised in your life. There can be a loss of appetite. Usually springs from trying to satisfy your soul's desires for happiness from eating at the table of the world. How many Christians are trying to feed their soul? By that I mean trying to find some kind of satisfaction, some kind of happiness through entertainment. Ah, amusement, ah, negating. No thinking. That's what ah, muse means. No thinking. To ease whatever it is that's troubling them through entertainment, whether it be the television or movies or sports or jobs or the family or the children, it leaves the child of God sick every time. And you can recognize the sickness because it's always marked by a lack of appetite for God, a lack of hunger. I remember years ago reading a commentator on 1 John. And he was dealing with this issue of what, you know, should I or shouldn't I engage in some activity? 
Well, as a good rule of thumb is, if it completely chills your interest in or desire for the Lord, if when you have engaged in it and you don't really have any hunger for spiritual things, it's a pretty good guide for you if it chills that. How much chilling is going on throughout the church of Jesus Christ? The very things that kill the spiritual appetite are accepted wholesale with no questions asked. And if you raise anything up about it, you're in for a fight. We're talking about hunger for God. And if it kills hunger for God, then you need to kill it. Wouldn't you agree? Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that, isn't that biblical logic? If it kills the appetite, the hunger for God, then it needs to be killed. One divine said the Lord's people stuff their souls with little things. You know what that's like? I had to watch myself coming home from church this morning. There's all kinds of snacks there around in the house. And I just love the snacks, you know. Well, wait, if I just fill my stomach with all these snacks, I won't want the real meal. And so Christians fill their soul with little things. And then there's no room for the great things. We should be alarmed if our interest in and desire for God, his word, and his work has grown faint. It's good to have these longings for the Lord. Good. These hunger pangs for him. It's a good thing to see the Lord move wonderfully. Now, hunger for God, and I'll be very brief here, hunger for God will show itself as a longing to know God in Christ. A longing to know God in Christ. Paul, in essence, saying everything that the world places so much value on, I view it as dung that I might know him. Dung. He's not referring to a mere head knowledge, but really this heart knowledge. There are many who are content with this kind of knowledge. It's unpractical. It's ineffectual. It's a mere theoretical knowledge of Jesus Christ. A lot of facts known about him. And Peter says in 2 Peter 2.21, it had been better for them not to have known than to have that head knowledge. Better not to know him at all than to know Jesus intellectually only. It only serves to agitate their sin and misery. But the kind of knowledge I'm talking about now, the hungering for that kind of knowledge 
of God in Christ, it not only comes into the understanding, but it makes its way right down here to your heart. Isn't that what we need, brothers and sisters, a more intimate heart knowledge of Jesus Christ above anything else? That's what Paul wanted. Anything else to me is gone. Second question. Now, second question. Why should we want a hunger for God? Well, some things are pretty obvious. In the first place, it's a revelation of true Christianity. If there's a hunger for God, it's a revelation of true Christianity. There are many who profess to be Christians, who profess to be among God's people, but they have no experience whatsoever of a true hunger for God. No idea what it's about. Never longing, never a desire for God. They know what it's like to hunger after the world, to desire things of the flesh. Really, I really want this so badly, but that as far as God is concerned has never been their experience. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, desire is the best discovery of a Christian. The best discovery of a Christian. He meant that this desire, this, this hunger for God is a clearer indicator of what's going on in the heart than are the words that we speak, even the actions we perform. You can say, you can repeat the words of Christianity. You can learn the language of Christians. I can sit down to a table full of food. And I can talk about, man, that smells good. I can speak of how well it's been prepared and affirm that it's delicious, it looks delicious, very edible. but have no desire or hunger for the food. Just so, one of the outstanding things that reveals true Christianity is that there is, at some level, an honest-to-goodness desire for God, a hunger for the Lord's presence, a hunger for communion, a desire for His grace and love to work in your life. A desire to know Jesus Christ. You see, this longing, what we're talking about now, this Christian's desire and longing for God arises from his love for God, as we saw a moment ago. And that love for God arises from the awareness of his love for the believer. We love him because, why? He first loved us. We know that's fundamental. We're not going to love God if he didn't first exercise his love toward us. But because that's happened, there's a love for the Lord. And because there's a love for the Lord in our souls, we hunger for him. We, we do want to pray. We want to go to the house of God to hear what he has to say. It's not drudgery. 
One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. No one's got to put a gun to our head to go to church. At least if the word of the Lord is preached. We want to be there because we have a hunger for God. If you don't love the Lord, you won't, and you can't hunger for it. So isn't it a good thing that we have this hunger, regardless of how it makes us feel at times, longing for him? It's a good thing because it reveals true Christianity. It's the real deal. Hunger for God also indicates that you're in a healthy spiritual state. One of the first indications that someone is sick, literally sick, that's when mom and dad gets worried about the child. They're not eating. They're not eating. They're not eating. Well, this, this, this kid all I was do is eat, but now there's something wrong. He's not hungry. So don't you know that it's a good thing to be hungry for the Lord? Because that indicates that's healthy. It's when there's no appetite that there's a problem. Something, there's a sickness. I don't decry hunger for God, longing for him. You know what desires for more grace are? More of God? They're simply growing pains. And that's what you want. These kinds of growing pains. You want to feel more and more. And the more intense they are, the better they are. There's no one who appreciates food like someone who hasn't eaten for a long time. The hunger has grown and grown and grown. My youngest boy would not eat breakfast, skip lunch. By dinner time, Dad, I'm starved. It's a good. Hunger pains are good. You really appreciate the food when you're hungry. You really appreciate the Lord when you're hungry for him. Hunger in the third place is a good thing. Because it brings us to the only one who can satisfy our desire for happiness. And that is what it's all about. God has placed in every human heart a longing for happiness, for joy. He didn't create Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden so that he might be miserable. Happiness. It's a good thing to want to be happy. It's not a bad thing. 
I think there are some people who think that. You would think that how they live, that they just love misery. But that's not how God made us. He's the one who put the desire in us for joy, for happiness. That means there's nothing wrong and everything right with longing to be happy. I mean, it is absolutely bonkers to think otherwise. Because the opposite is, I'm supposed to long to be miserable. Is that what God wants? And yet that is some people's Christianity. They think it's going around with a long, drawn-out face and oh, mourning my sins all the time and never having any real happiness. It's nonsense, folks. That is not the effects of the gospel. Then was our tongues filled with laughter, our mouths and our tongues with melody, said the psalmist, when they had the experience of God's presence. In fact, it is a desire, this desire for happiness, that we should want to grow in our lives. Why? Not only because God is the one who put that desire in us in the first place, but God himself, you'll find in the word of God, makes constant use of that desire to be happy to bring us to himself. And he does it over and over and over again. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It's wrong to seek happiness just for happiness sake. That's wrong. But when we look for and find our happiness from hungering and desiring God, that's a very good thing. As a matter of fact, that's a great thing. The Lord says, you want to be happy? I want you to be happy. I want you to be happy. But here's how I want you to go about it. You hunger for me. You long for me, and you'll be happy. You go looking somewhere else, and you'll find misery. I am the source of your happiness. You can try all the trinkets of the world. You can try money. You can try power. You can try whatever you want to try. Relationships? No, 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 no. I'm your source of happiness. And what happens when we, when we find our greatest and most satisfying happiness in God? You want to know what happens? He is glorified. He is glorified. I mean, do, 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 do we realize how much the Lord is glorified through the happy, happily lived out lives of his people? I mean, I think it's a pretty good advertisement for Christianity. You want to be a sourpuss all the time? Well, this is wrong, oh, that's wrong, and... Well, is he woo-woo? Life is just a, the pits. Well, that's so glorifying to the Lord, isn't it? That's just wonderfully glorifying to God. He didn't save us to be miserable. 
He doesn't give us these hunger pangs for him so that we might just be unhappy. But the hunger pangs, the hunger pains are there that will end in our happiness because there's nothing like a happy people who glorify the Lord. Blessedness. It's always plural in the Hebrew. Blessedness says, happy is the man. That's what he's saying. Happy, happy. Well, you would think that was a motivation, wouldn't you? Blessed is the man who walketh not in. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Here's happiness. He'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bringeth forth the fruit in the season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Man, isn't that what you want? That man is happy. And the Lord is setting that happiness is something to be sought after. But notice how it comes from seeking him. I think you find the heart of why there are a lot of unhappy Christians. When we try to satisfy our desire... God placed desire for happiness by looking for it in the creature or created things other than the creator. We miss the whole reason for our existence. And that leaves us anything but truly happy. And you're not glorifying the Lord when your life is unglorifying to God and you're a Christian. You are not happy. The opposite is true. You ever notice how the Lord uses our longing to be happy to bring us to long for Him? Delight thyself in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. <laughs> you long for me, and I'll give you what you long for. You'll be happy. Only those who delight themselves in the Lord can be trusted with that promise. I'll give you what you want. Because you'll only want that which pleases him. What is beating at the heart of all the commands of God that say in essence, do this and you'll be blessed. What is he setting before them? Do this, and you'll be happy. You don't do this, and you won't be happy. God is using our desire for happiness to bring us to glorify Him. And when we do that, we're going to be happy. And the more that becomes the part of our thinking and living, 
the more we're going to hunger for God. It sounds selfish, but it's not. Because it's all about him. My happiness is about him. Being happy in Jesus. Someone prayed earlier in the prayer time. It's really the heart of it. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's what Nehemiah tells them. They were mourning and crying. Don't. It's the joy of the Lord that's your strength. Third question. I've got two, but this is brief. I kind of said it all, but how, how does one become hungry for God? Well, it started first place. It started, it started when you and I realized we were bankrupt. We were bankrupt. We did not have what was necessary. We were fallen sinners, undone, wretched, nothing, nothing to, that we could do to save ourselves. And so that's why the Lord in Matthew 5 says, Blessed are they. Happy, happy are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's the very beginning. So the Lord opened up your mind and my mind for the first time to see that we have no righteousness of our own that God will accept. And that drives us, what does it do? It drives us to Christ. I need him. I need Jesus Christ. That spiritual hunger increases when God saves the lost sinner, and when he saves him, he plants into his heart a desire for the Lord. So if you're saved, that day you got saved, it began right then and there. God placed an interest in your soul for him, a desire for him. And you began to want to live for him. You, I, I want to go to church. I want to pray. I want to read my Bible. I want to be with other Christians. I don't want to be with the lost anymore. They're not, they're not the Lord's people. They're going to dr- drag me away from the Lord. No, I want the Lord. God put that desire in you and began to grow. From that point on, the Lord takes various measures to increase that spiritual hunger for his people, for himself, but that hunger will always be rooted in that desire to be happy. Sometimes it's an act of sovereign power. He just creates a longing for himself. He just makes, he just does it. And you can't explain why nothing special happened. It wasn't a special meeting. It wasn't a revival service. It was just... The Lord began to work in your heart and you began to long for him. Something changed. Sometimes God will increase our hunger for him by bringing us into a spiritual wilderness. It's waste howling, it's barren. And we hate the wilderness. Like being out in that desert and longing for a drink of water. Sometimes you and I have to be placed into a desert. It is not a fun experience. Barrenness. But then you begin to desire the Lord. 
God will allow his people, moreover, to discover just how unsatisfying the world is. They try those entertainments. They try those broken cisterns. They try this and that, but they come up empty. And they learn, and they have to learn it. We have to learn it over and over again. None but Christ can satisfy. None. My job can't do it. My spouse can't do it. My children certainly can't do it. My church can't do it. Fellowship can't do it. There's only one who can satisfy my soul, and that's Jesus Christ. Most of all, God increases our hunger for him by thrilling our hearts with his love for us. Nothing like that. I know preachers wish they could make it happen. They wish they could just say the right thing and all of a sudden the Lord's people are and they themselves are overwhelmed with the reality. Not that's just repeated. We know John 3.16. We know so many verses about the love of the Lord but my when it becomes personal and the Lord says to you in your own heart I love you with all of my infinite being. I always have and I always will. Nothing you can do will ever make me stop loving you and caring for you and providing you and protecting you. It cannot happen. I do not change. My love is from everlasting to everlasting. And... When you have sensed that, whether in a meeting at church or in your own private devotions, there's nothing like it. There's just nothing like it. All I can do is weep. Just cry like a baby. And say, Lord, Lord, you shouldn't have done it. I failed you so much. Why should he love me so? And there's only one answer he gives. I love you because you're in my son. And he is well beloved to me. And therefore you are well beloved to me. I always love you in my son. Fourth question, how is this hunger satisfied? How do we get this fullness? The text says, he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul. Filleth, filleth. You're not on a diet here now. It's not a spiritual diet. Fills. Well, how, how, how is the hunger? How is this hunger obtained? Well, my Bible says in Colossians 1.19, it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, should all fullness dwell. And in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There is laid up in Christ a storehouse, a great storehouse that can never be emptied. 
And so Paul would say to the Philippian church, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by, literally, in Christ Jesus. Yeah, I know that's in context dealing with material goods. So they supplied his need and God will supply your need, but it goes well beyond the material. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. So the answer to this whole issue of how do we get the hunger satisfied, it's how it got satisfied the first time. What did you do? You came to Christ. And you do it over and over and over again. Lord, I come just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. I have prayed that so often in prayer. Lord, I'm coming to you. You told me to come and I'm coming. That means that you come in all of your emptiness. You come... Just as you are, and just as you are might mean you come with a cold heart, you might come with a sad heart, you might come with a fearful heart, you might come with a worldly heart. It makes no difference. He just says, you just get yourself to me, and I'll satisfy you. I'll fill you. Just don't go looking somewhere else. Don't go looking somewhere else. I am your satisfaction. Then you'll be satisfied. You'll be filled. You'll be happy. And you'll be holy. Because holiness is happiness. And happiness is holiness. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Father in heaven, we have looked at so much in thy word, but we thank thee it comes down to one simple thing, hungering after thee and Christ filling the empty soul. Take this word and preach it on long after I leave. But thy people here, in a way that may well surprise them, come, Lord, and intensify the longing for thee, granting them that ability, that grace, and that love to seek thee and to find thee. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.